Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Coming to you from the scenic city in beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee, USA. Welcome to episode 12. For our new listeners in Nigeria, Spain, and South Africa, so glad you're now part of the Love in Action conversation. Fundamentally, career development is broken. Our expectations and what our picture of what career development is or what it should be have not kept pace with the reality of today's workplace. That's a direct quote from our guest today, Julie Winkle Giulioni, co-author of the bestseller, Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go, Career Conversations Organizations Need and Employees Want. Julie works with companies worldwide, teaching them to improve performance through leadership and learning. She has been named one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers, and I'm honored to also call her friend. So everything you ever wanted to know about what it takes to develop and grow your employees, you're going to hear some of that right now. Let's dive in. So welcome to the podcast. I'm here talking to the one and only Julie Winkle Giulioni. Welcome to the Love and Action podcast, Julie. Oh, thanks so much, Marcel. I've been looking forward to this. I always start with this question. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Hmm, good way to start. You know, I've recently started this ritual. When I wake up, I hit the coffee pot, do some meditation. And so this morning, and I don't know, you're probably familiar with all the apps that are out there, Yoga Glow and Insight Timer. But this morning's was on enoughness. And I guess it's kind of hard not to get up with a smile when we start with these kind of positive messages and a sense of being grounded and you know, hot coffee brewing in the background. Yeah. Yeah. We all have our rituals that uh, get us up and going. I like that. So Julie, walk us through your career background a little bit as uh, our listeners get acquainted with you. Tell us, how did you arrive at doing the work that you do now? Well, you know, it's interesting when I look back, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. you can see the, the threads. And I have been a teacher of sorts uh, from the very beginning. Uh, my first job, I taught modeling and charm to children. And when I think about it, you know, I frequently joke that I haven't come very far because today I'm just teaching bigger people how to behave and how to, to act toward one another. Yeah. But I was a high school teacher. I taught vocational education uh, for quite a few years before moving to a university here in Southern California where I was a a professor and a department chair for several years. And then I went back into industry. I held several training management positions and was ultimately recruited to one of my vendors, a training company. It was Zanger Miller at the time. It's become Achieve Global, and I think it's something else today. But I kind of cut my consulting teeth there, working throughout the United States, consulting with developing training and implementing training 
with organizations in the, the leadership space. And uh, the last five years I spent there, I was in product development. And so when I left, I was the director of product development, building and uh, leading the teams that build uh, programs that are, in many cases, still used by organizations worldwide. And so 19 years ago this summer, actually, I left the illusion of security for the illusion of freedom. And I went out on my own. And Mm. today I have a small consulting firm, a niche consulting firm here in Southern California with a focus on learning and leadership development. Mm, Fantastic. So some context for you guys, the listeners, Julie and I have met in person and we did that through an event that I reference often, the Humans First Club. And it was in LA. I flew out and met Julie for the first time And Julie, I was immediately just so impacted by you as a person and then your message and what you're about. So let's talk a little bit about how does your focus on development mesh with this philosophy that we've been seeing spring up all over the country by uh, making or putting human beings first? Yeah. And let me just reflect back on that experience as well for a second. It was so fun. And I was so impressed with you, Marcel, with the the powerful and provocative messages that you offered. But also, you were just an amazingly skillful facilitator of not just the group, but also of insights from the group. So it was really a powerful experience. And I am so drawn to the human's first movement and the work that Mike Vacanti is doing with, you know, really a focus on respect and dignity and involvement and trust and helping people bring their whole human selves um, to the workplace. And I know that you share my belief that organizations need that more now than probably ever before. So getting to your question, um, I believe that one of the primary ways that we can put humans first is really by recognizing and honoring our very human drive to learn and to grow and to contribute. And so enabling development, in my opinion, really acknowledges and empowers the whole person uh, in the workplace and, of course, beyond. Mm, Fascinating. And so let's dive into the book, Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go, Career Conversations Employees Want. It's a great title. Why did you write this book? Well, fundamentally, career development is broken. And it's really, in my experience, it's been broken for a long time. Our expectations, our pictures about what career development is and what it should be, they simply have not kept pace with the reality of the workplace. As you do the research on this, you quickly find that career development is one of the primary reasons people come to an organization. You know, they sign on because of the opportunities that are provided or that they anticipate will be provided. It's also one of the primary reasons people leave. You know, the exit interviews are filled with stories of folks who were disappointed, who 
dreams of, of what their careers could look like were shattered. And so they're moving on. And as I've researched career development further, I've really come to see it almost as a leader's Swiss Army knife because it accomplishes so much you know, beyond attracting top talent, retaining it. There's engagement, there's quality, there's innovation, there's results. I mean, like bottom line results and productivity. So despite this compelling business case for career development and the fact that there's a huge human case for it too, people crave it, only about 25% of the population is actually satisfied with the career development that, that they're getting. So I guess I saw this as really um, a meaty kind of high value and pervasive problem that needed to be understood and addressed. And so that was the challenge I signed up for when we started writing the book. Yeah. And I took a note down about that stat. 25% of the population is satisfied with career development. Why is that? Well, I think in large part, it's this huge disconnect between what people expect of career development and what's possible today. Because when you think about it, the last, I don't know, two decades, we have seen so much in terms of downsizing, right-sizing, outsourcing, all of those things that have affected the workplace and the previous kind of employment contract we had, employee and organization. We've seen this systematic flattening of the organization, the delayering of that middle level of management. We've seen boomers who not only have the audacity to live longer, but they're working longer as well, and occupying seats and positions that newer entrants to the workplace were hoping to ultimately take on. And, you know, just that the nature of work is changing. The way we work is much more organic. Projects, opportunities, initiatives, they're all kind of formulated around customer needs or competitive challenges or whatever they might be. And so the workplace is so different today than it was even, you know, five or 10 years ago. And yet our expectations of what career development should look like haven't kept up with that. And so when I ask people, take a minute to just draw out what career development looks like to you guess what the imagery is that comes to their mind? Mm. What is that? It's a ladder. It's a ladder, right? I mean, when you think about, you know, filling in the the line career development, it's all about climbing the corporate ladder is immediately what people think of this, you know, this progressive prescribed way that the organization kind of taps you on the shoulder and invites you to the, the next level. But the ladder is dead. It's toppled. The rungs are rickety. It's been, pretty dysfunctional for some time. And so what we need to do is let our expectations and our own internalized imagery kind of catch up with that. We've got to replace the latter with something more like, you know, different organizations are looking at it differently, a, a web or a jungle gym or a lattice. In our book, we talk about the climbing wall because it's a, another more contemporary way of thinking about much more organic and multidimensional ways we can grow within an organization. And, you know, I guess one of the things, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Marcel, as well. I'm starting to almost think that the word career is a liability. 
mm. anymore. I'm thinking we might want to just, you know, get rid of that, find a new way to talk about it because career evokes these pictures that just don't sync up with today's workplace in many organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of expectations, maybe I want to dive into that whole, how to relabel the word career. And that's a, that's a good topic as well to touch on. But let's talk about expectations of different generations, especially the younger workers. How does it differ? Well, and I'm speaking of the millennials, but you got Generation Z nipping at the heels of the millennials now coming into the workforce. So, yeah. you know, we have four generations now at work. But Let's talk about what you found about this whole millennial generation. And, you know, we have the stereotypes of what mm-hmm. millennials want or need, et cetera. So how do they differ from those that are older and more seasoned? Like me, I'm a Gen Xer. Yep. Yep. And I'm the boomer. So we've kind of covering the waterfront here. And I'm so glad that you mentioned this. You know, I'm concerned. I think the popular media in many ways is, I don't know, skewing our view of millennials in the workplace. I did some research last year or the year before to really dive into this and kind of get a sense across the generations, sort of what are the workplace beliefs, what are the priorities um, for each of the generations. And at the time, these were too new to really evaluate in a meaningful way. So the focus is on Gen X, millennials, and then, of course, the boomers. And you know what I found? I went in, of course, you know, with your standard hypothesis that we'll have differences along these dimensions and realized I was totally wrong Mm. because the data came back and what it actually showed was that the generations shared more, had more similar points of view around these issues than differences. Hmm. So it kind of, you know, blew my hypothesis, but it opened the door to some really powerful insights, I think. What I found is across the generations, the three generations, priorities were really similar. Some of the top priorities that they all shared were having bosses that they respected and trusted. And it doesn't that fit into the whole human first discussion? Oh, yeah. They all shared the need for interesting work and fair treatment and growth and learning was a priority across the board, across the generation. What was really interesting and what kind of blew my mind was as we had them rank order this set of priorities, the three that were at the bottom of the list for all three generations were promotions, compensation, and empowerment. And to me, that is really an important message for leaders because I think so frequently leaders avoid conversations about career development because they make this assumption that everybody wants, you know, the next big thing, the promotion, the raise, the bonus, the corner office, all the stuff that's in short supply. But the truth is that's so much less important than learning, than growth, than respect and trust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I found that across the board, the bottom line is that as humans, when it comes to issues and priorities in the workplace, there's a lot more similarity than difference among the, the millennials, Gen Xers, and boomers. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, for clarification for me specifically, at the bottom of the list of priorities, you said three things, promotion, compensation, and the third one kind of got me by surprise. You said empowerment. Empowerment. I know. I know. And we put that into the survey with the hypothesis that in particular, the millennials were going to say that that was super important to them, that they wanted to be empowered to go and to do and and that was less important to them than the boss they respected and trusted, interesting work, fair treatment, growth and learning. Wow. Wow. Okay. I know. I know. So this is good. Let's just keep digging here. What can managers and learning and development people, HR people do to help others grow? Can we get into the practical aspects of what's the shift we need to make here? Yeah, you bet. You bet. And I think the shift kind of operates on a couple of different levels. There's sort of a a macro and, I don't know, almost kind of organizational structure piece of it. And then there's the more micro because we know that that relationship between leader and employee is, is critical too. And so there are even some small things that leaders can do to make a difference. So maybe let's talk structural first. And then we can dive down. So probably the biggest change and the most significant change in terms of driving different results that an organization can start to look at and make is moving from the kind of the one and done annual inspection approach to development planning and turn it into something that's more organic, more pervasive, more collaborative, more ongoing, really. Mm. You know, so frequently organizations do career development. You know, they do their annual development planning on that annual or or semi-annual schedule. And folks get together and they have, you know, sometimes a really great conversation. And the problem is, that plan then goes into a file, is stuck away until next year, this time when we revisit it. People don't grow like that. What folks need for the kind of growth that is going to support today's organizations in the dynamic workplace that we find ourselves um, facing is something that's going to be more in the moment, more embedded in the workflow more part of that kind of on-the-fly exchange that we have with folks day in and day out. If we're going to build the kind of agile workforce that we need, we've got to do this in a more, I was talking to one client and they were shifting their business model from once a year payments to a subscription model. I started to see, okay, it's a subscription model that we need to be implementing when it comes to development too. Rather than that once a year, two hour conversation, what if we just spent, you know, a half an hour a month or 10 minutes a week or two minutes a day keeping development front of mind? It would be powerful and it would create a totally different development culture while also building the depth of trust and loyalty and connection and relationship that we want between employee and manager as well. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, Julie, because a guest on the podcast a few weeks back was uh, Doug Conant, former CEO of of Campbell Soup Company, and he wrote the book Touchpoint. 
And that's exactly mm-hmm. what we're talking about. We have these, as managers, these opportunities of having these micro moments, these quick interactions throughout the day that are great opportunities to turn into development moments, basically, is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And you're, yeah, you're reiterating the same things, that this is what we need to move towards and away from the, got it's the dreaded annual performance review. And mm-hmm. I wish that that would go away forever because um, learning happens in the moment. Yeah, yeah. And people are ready to absorb new information and take on new skills and have new insights in the moment, not necessarily on July 24th when you're going to sit down at 10 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing that this ongoing sort of um, evolving dialogue supports is the need for agile development. Increasingly, I'm talking with clients about agile versus traditional development approaches. I read a a research study recently. 85% of the jobs that we're going to be doing in the year 2030 have not yet been invented. Hmm. 85% of the jobs we're going to be doing in 11 short years are not even on our radar screen yet. So if we're not having ongoing conversations about what people need, what they're interested in, where the organization is going, what's happening in our industry with our competitors, if we're not in constant dialogue about that, we're going to end up developing people for roles that are no longer necessary, as opposed to continuing to sort of like the the airline pilots do the, the zigging and the zagging and the adjustments that have to be made, small adjustments, moment by moment to make sure you hit a destination. Yeah, yeah. Julie, one of your um, stats that you put on your book, and I'm going to read it, goes like this. 90% of all great career advancing ideas go nowhere. Well, that speaks to me that they're not that great after all if they're not going anywhere. But <laughs> but. Tell me about what some of those ideas might be because listeners may be employing those ideas now thinking they're great when they're not. Yeah, yeah. So what we're trying to say there is there's a huge disconnect between the ideation activities that people um, engage in. You know, folks get really excited about, oh, well, let's do this and you could do that. And there's the other thing. Where it breaks down is in the execution. Mm. And that kind of goes back to our one and done sort of uh, approach. If you're going to create a a great, exciting plan and then tuck it away, nothing's going to happen with that. People are too busy. There are too many other priorities tugging at their time and their brains. And so the key is to keep things front of mind and to get the ideas to go from in their heads and hearts into their hands and feet and move it out there in the world. Part of that has to do with, you know, building a plan collaboratively so that the employee is actually owning the action steps. Um, That's a a piece that many leaders sort of forget to do. And in so doing, they end up putting too much of the monkey on their back rather than where it belongs on the employee's back. But the other thing has to do with accountability and support. One of the things that I'm playing with a lot now with some of my clients is the idea of what if we shifted from IDP, Individual Development Planning, to CDP, Collaborative Development Planning. 
So that rather than it being just manager and employee, what if we created a support system, a development team for an employee? What if an employee pulled together kind of their own little board of directors, stakeholders, support system, and we started thinking more in terms of, you know, rather than that one-on-one meeting, even have growth gatherings, bring that group together to help brainstorm the ideas and the actions and to support individuals in executing it. Development really does take a village. And that kind of uh, support system built in from the ground can offer um, more day in and day out uh, for that employee's growth. Yeah. So that really speaks to me as far as the human's first approach to growing people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I want to transition to some other questions just about leadership in general, Julie. Why do you think so many people lead through fear and fear-based management instead of the principles that, that you write about that are more about caring for the whole person and growing and developing them? Gosh, that is such a great question, Marcel. I think that it boils down probably to something so mundane. I think it boils down to habits. You know, we grew up as kids, many of us did, with a lot of fear. You know, don't do that. Don't touch the stove. You're going to get hurt if you do. Yeah, all of the, you know, the the stuff that is intended to keep us safe, of course. I'm not criticizing parents by any stretch. There's certainly a piece of that. But then we watch it play out in the workplace. And so it reinforces this false belief that somehow fear is a motivator, that it drives results, that it's a force to be used in service of, you know, some end product. And so I think over the years, we sort of absorb it like osmosis. And like any habit, you know, it carves those deep grooves into the gray matter, making it easier and easier to go there rather than than somewhere else. And I think that in a way, this fear uh, and this fear-based approach to leading is also somehow linked to overwhelm. And I don't know if you're seeing this, out there, but my experience is there's an epidemic of overwhelm in the, in the world and, and with leaders in particular, and it's completely understandable. I mean, our leaders and managers are the most time-starved group in history. They're being pulled in so many different directions with bars being elevated daily, moment by moment, with the number of stakeholders they have to serve increasing, with quality standards increasing, with 24-7 access and, and virtual teams. I mean, it's so much that they're doing. And so I think that what happens is that this is kind of creating the opposite of a virtuous cycle, that the, the fear feeds the overwhelm, the overwhelm then feeds the fear, and we're perpetuating this cycle mm. in organization. Mm. That's interesting. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I'm very tempted because if fear comes <laughs> from things like overwhelm, how do we defeat the overwhelm? Yeah, that's probably for another podcast, huh? (laughs) Although, I mean, let's talk about it because if they're related then, how could we start to chip away at both of them? 
you know, because if we can start to chip away at the fear, then perhaps that supports chipping away at the, the overwhelm. And so I might suggest two ingredients, two possible strategies for addressing that. One is self-awareness. Yeah. I think very few managers or leaders get up in the morning and think, okay, I'm going to go to work and scare the bejeebers out of my people. That's how I'm going to get them to perform. You know, I don't think it's a conscious choice. I think it is this habit, this unconscious way, you know, suit that we've put on um, without even being aware of it. So to the extent that we can start holding the mirror up to leaders, that we can start offering feedback, that we can start helping them see what they're doing and the connection that it has to people. I mean, you know, because the data is out there in terms of attrition, in terms of wellness, in terms of engagement. It's not hard to connect the dots between fear and diminished results. So holding that mirror up and helping folks become more self-aware, I think, is the first thing. And the other one is we need a lot more positive modeling and examples. And that's what I love about some of the, the work of Humans First is we're putting out there what it looks like to lead differently. And a lot of folks haven't seen that before. It's new to them. And so we need to make sure that there are, that we're promoting the, the models of what loving, inclusive, respectful, trust-based leadership looks like. And then folks can start making a choice and making a conscious choice about how they want to approach their folks. I think you nailed it, Julie. I really do, especially the self-awareness piece. My goodness, as a leadership coach myself, it all starts with self-awareness when we sit down with a client to address blind spots that they are not even aware of. And, you know, it doesn't make them bad people, like you said. Mm-hmm. You know, they may come into the workplace and lead from the belief system or the experience that they come from. And that just takes a little bit of tweaking and changing your mindset around how to do that better and more efficiently. So thank you for that. Yeah. Self-awareness yeah. and positive modeling. It's powerful. So, Julie, what are you reading right now? Are there any books that uh, you'd recommend? Yeah, actually, um, my daughter is a gerontology student. And so she has given me a summer reading assignment. So on the the bedside table is Being Mortal. It's a classic uh, by Atul Gawande, I want to say. You know, it's about death and dying and, and that part of the human experience. Uh, So it's not the most uplifting book, but I've got to do it to get an A with my daughter. And on the other side of the house, have you read Shakti Leadership? Not yet. Okay. It's by Nalima Bott. It's a couple years old, um, but it speaks to female and masculine energy in business. And I'm really interested. I've done a couple of keynotes recently on career development and women. And I'm kind of interested these days in the nuances and how we approach things differently between the two genders. So that reminds me of a book that now I'm going to recommend, Julie, that falls along the lines when you talk about the the females and the masculine energy. 
I just interviewed Tomas Chamorro per music. He is a professor at Columbia University and an organizational psychologist. I don't know if you read the book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? <laughs> I haven't read it, but I've certainly seen it. You would recommend that? I would recommend that because it is, it's all data-based, so evidence-based. And he's making a case for, obviously, the, you know, we have these hyper-masculine traits that are, are prevalent in the workplace. And maybe that touches on some of the fear-based management styles that we see mm -hmm. in the workplace. And he says it's because we elevate and we sort of glorify these hyper-masculine traits. So his case for the book is, if you want to get more women into leadership roles, start looking at some of the more feminine traits. But then that evens up both the kind of leaders you want in your workplace that are both men and women when you start looking at the traits that are altruistic in nature, things like emotional intelligence, self-awareness, integrity, and transparency and humility. So it's a fascinating book. And again, it's all research-based, which I'm a research geek, so I was all over it. So shout out to Tomas, who was a guest uh, last week. So you're going to love that once you get it. Oh, I love it. Thanks so much. Now, is there anybody that is speaking of shout outs that you want to shout out someone whose work or book or research you'd like to recognize that aligns with your own work, with your own principles of growing and developing human beings? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we could go on forever on this. So let me just highlight one person in particular, and it's Susan Fowler. Susan is the author of Why Motivating People Doesn't Work and What Does. And she has a new book coming out next month called Master Your Motivation. And I am just loving this. Um, it's based upon uh, a lot of the work of DC and Ryan back in the 70s. But it is equally relevant today because it really speaks to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And that the core, what really causes people to motivate themselves um, is a satisfaction of three psychological needs associated with connection, competence, and control. And so I think Susan has made this very accessible, and I think it's going to become really a, a motivational Bible for leaders and managers going forward. Well, I'll make a note of that for me myself. Thank you for that, Julie. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the things that are tugging at your heart right now that you'd like our listeners to know? Is there something that is, is speaking to you personally that you've seen out there that you want to bring to our attention? You know, it's sort of a feeling that I'm having. And it's interesting because it kind of relates and, and is almost the counterpoint to the discussion that we've just had around generations and even um, genders. But it goes broader than that. It's feeling to me like it's time for all of us to step back, helicopter up and really take a, a broader look at, at ourselves. Because when we do that, we can certainly appreciate all that we share, all that's similar, all that we have in common, versus this, my sense is this ever-narrowing microscopic focus on our differences. And, you know, I think that really just skews the truth about what fundamentally connects us as humans. Um, so organizations, nations, our world can only benefit from shifting our focus to what we've got in common, which is enormous. I love it. 
Love it. So I want to end this conversation. I wish we could just keep going for hours. <laughs> Me too. It's such a great conversation list and there's so much to touch on. But I want to give you a chance to end this this episode your way and to kind of bring the conversation home the way that you would like to. So is there anything that you would want our listeners to walk away from that's going to truly make a difference in their lives, maybe aligned with uh, your book's message or your work? Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that opportunity. You know, people have uh, an innate curiosity and a desire to learn and grow. At the same time, organizations face increasing pressures to deliver more, to operate differently. And rather than treating these things as separate, distinct, even kind of competing issues and priorities, it's time to bring them together. Helping people develop and grow serves them, you know, and their human drive to do and to be more. But it also serves the organization as it needs to do and be more as well. So I would suggest that helping others grow is a a powerful human's first strategy that also delivers on business results. Mm. With that... We'll end. And that's a great way to do it. And I thank you for spending the time with me, Julie. Yeah, it's been an honor. And uh, I hope that I run into you again, maybe in LA. <laughs> Since I have lots of friends in LA. I, I need to get out there more often. <laughs> yes, you do. And the pleasure has been all mine, Marcel. Thanks so much for this opportunity and for the great work that you're doing and the, the positive, powerful messages that you're putting out there. Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go is the name of the book. And Julie, if they want to find you, what's the best way to go about connecting with you? Probably through my website, which is juliewinklejulioni.com. There you go. All right. Well, when I come back, as I always do, you will have my three key takeaways and one final comment. And I will do that after this short message. There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club. Change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old school command and control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with a growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Julie Winkle Giulioni. So many great takeaways and lessons learned. Here's a few I jotted down. She says, career development is the primary reason people come to work. It's what they're attracted to. But it's also one of the primary reasons people leave when they don't get it. And truth is, according to the numbers, only 25% of the working population is satisfied with the career development they're receiving. And this is the problem that Julie addresses in her book. And she also comes up with a solution, which is her life's work in her consulting business. Now, Julie calls out the false idea that career development is a ladder, as in climbing the corporate ladder. 
That's what we still imagine behind this idea of what career development is. But that ladder is dysfunctional and it's got to be replaced by what she calls a climbing wall, which is a more multidimensional way, a more experiential and organic way of learning and development. She says this whole notion that millennials need special attention and that they crave development and mentoring and learning to be happy at work. Well, guess what? It's true for millennials, but it's also true for boomers and Gen Xers as well. We all share the same priorities for growth and learning. We all want that. And in many cases, even ahead of pay raises and promotions. And remember this, learning happens at the moment. It's evolving. It happens through ongoing dialogue throughout the day, not in a one-way conversation held once a year. So here's the quote of the day, which you can find in the show notes of this episode. Here's what Julie said. People have an innate desire to learn and grow. And organizations face increasing pressures to deliver more. So rather than treating these things as separate and as competing priorities, it's time to bring them together. Helping people to develop and grow serves them in their human drive to do and be more. And it also serves the organization as it needs to be and do more as well. So I'm going to end on that fantastic note. My special thanks to Julie Winkle Giulioni for such a stimulating conversation. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. If you want to get the show notes, go to marcelschwantes.com and you click on the Love in Action podcast. And I would love it if you shared this episode with your networks. Join us next week when we talk to Annie McKee, author of How to Be Happy at Work. On behalf of my production team at One Stone Creative, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.